Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Forever. Dog. Hey, y'all. My name is Alex Berg, and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the world's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary, and every week we focus on major topics affecting the queer community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. In recent weeks, we've talked on this show about the alarming rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and how this has impacted LGBTQ Asian folks. We've now reached a horrifying inflection point as six Asian women and two other individuals were killed in a racist attack in Atlanta. Their names are Soon Chung Park, Suncha Kim, Young A. Yu, Hun Chung Grant, Xiao J. Tan, Dao Yo Fong, Paul Andre Michaels, and Delena Ashley Yan. In the aftermath of the attack, law enforcement said the shooting suspect had a bad day and didn't name racism nor other stereotypes as a motive. Many have been outraged and hurt by that and have also called for us to use this as a moment to address how many layers of discrimination contributed. So we'll be starting off the show by talking about all of it with Alice Waiham, the co-editor of the upcoming book, Q&A, Voices from Queer Asian North America. Then LGBTQ Nation managing editor Alex Bollinger is joining to talk about a few big stories that are on our radar, from Senator Lindsey Graham's pledge to filibuster the Equality Act to one of my favorite topics, a study about bisexual women, which is right on time because it's Bi Health Month. Joining me now to discuss the racist attack and rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and how it connects to LGBTQ issues is Alice Waiham, the Equity and Social Justice Director of Northern California Grantmakers. Welcome, Alice. Thank you for having me, Alex. I really appreciate you joining me because I know that this is just such a painful and raw and exhausting time. Um, how have you been holding up this past week? Uh, honestly, it's been very difficult. Um, I've been on a roller coaster ride of feeling weepy, feeling um, outraged, feeling sad for my community. Um, you know, rage is, underneath the rage is grief. And mm -hmm. there's been so much loss, not only last week with the Atlanta shootings, um, but the increased anti Asian hate violence. You know, almost every day I live in the Bay Area and almost every day I'm reading someone else has been assaulted. I read another one uh, this morning. There was another one on Wednesday. You know, so it's it's kind of like, hammering it's kind of like impact on impact like when do we ever get this relief and at the same time i just know that this is not something new for other people of color especially our uh, black and indigenous folks so i i really think about the connectivity and the solidarity that we have with other communities of color in addition to what is happening with the asian american um, communities right now and it's hard 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I think that you raise such a good point. And I definitely want to get into that more in our conversation. But it seems like so much of the hurt and frustration that, you know, is coming through with all of these feelings is how anti-Asian racism has been an issue for a really long time, but it ha- hasn't gotten the headlines that it should have. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you've you've uh, named the the shootings as racist what i wrote about and what i'm also discussing with you know my other um my kin and kindred we're all talking about this is a racist this is a heterosexist this is a classist sexist murders that have been happening and that to me is when we when we just say that it's racist it doesn't sort of give you the full breadth and what it all is. Mm-hmm. And for me, the work that I do at Northern California Grant Makers, you know, I work on racial equity. And when I say racial equity, I'm already thinking about it from an intersectional lens. That to me is when something is racist, it's already inclusive that I'm talking about gender, I'm talking about sexuality, I'm talking about ability, I'm talking about a class. That's already there. And that allows me to center racism and race because I have an intersectional framework and lens to it. Intersectionality is a code word that is used a lot or it's a a phrase used a lot. Not everybody really understands what it means. And when I wrote about it in, in my blog post, I wanted to make that linkage that Black lesbian feminists were talking about these interlocking ideas identities and interlocking oppressions for a really long time from like, you know, the 70s and even before. So it's not as if it's a new term. It's a term officially, you know, coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a professor. She coined it 30 years ago. Um, But even before then, black lesbian feminists were organizing and talking about their lives from a multiple perspective as opposed to a single perspective. And I think that's where I really want to tell more people like how to understand it because sometimes they think intersection is like oh you add things on top of it and it's not about an additive thing it's really about all of those are really shape and inform each other these identities even take it to the next level for our listeners who might be new with some of this terminology what does it mean how should they be be thinking about it especially with the event of this past week hopefully people are reading more about the history of anti-asian violence and discrimination, and in particularly, you know, the sexualized, fetishized, objectified um, stereotypes of Asian women and Asian American women. And I say Asian women, too, because, you know, this is it's about this history of the U.S. occupying, colonizing, having different wars in Asian countries. Right. And so there's this notion of Asian Americans always being a perpetual foreigner, like we don't belong here. So, you know, someone on the street could say, hey, go back to where you came from. And I'm like, I was born in L.A., you know, so I I would love to go back to L.A. right now. But the notion that we don't belong here, Asians don't belong Mm -hmm. here, we're foreigners. We are immigrants. Right. Um, And there's a long history. But there's also people who are Asian who were born in the U.S. In bringing out, you know, intersectionality and those identities and the stereotyping. Let me give you this example. I think when you talk to a lot of butch lesbians who present like the way I do, masculine, I identify as gender nonconforming, I wear men's clothing, I have short hair, there's always a bathroom story, right? Like I'll go into Mm. a bathroom and I'll freak out the women who are in the bathroom because they think a man has come into the bathroom. It happens often. Maybe not as much because I'm not in airports as much these days, mm-hmm. but but usually that's where it happens, like in these public settings, bathrooms. And there's one time I 
I went into a women's restroom and I was washing my hands and I noticed from the side that the door opened and then the the door closed. I'm so familiar with that. A woman has opened the door, seen me, shut it to see if she could see that sign with a person in a dress, right? And she's like, okay, this is the bathroom for her. She walks in and usually they, you know, then they're just like, do their business. But this particular white woman, she came up to me and she touched my arm and softly said to me, you've made a mistake. You're in the wrong bathroom. And I looked at her and I just said, what? You know, I know I'm in the right bathroom. And then I walk out. And what happened there is she's a good Samaritan thinking that an Asian man, possibly, who did not understand English, came into the restroom by accident, right? And so right there, I'm trying to figure out, is this woman, Mm -hmm. you know, racist or is she sexist or she, like, through her sexism, through this kind of heterosexism, like, I can't present as female, Mm -hmm. even though I identify as female too. So all of those are happening simultaneously. And that's why this intersectional lens is about like, I can't really tell if somebody is like being racist or sexist with me because they're happening simultaneously Mm -hmm. and they're informed by each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where people are like, ah, okay. Because some of these stereotypes that we have that we say are about race Mm -hmm. are actually gendered. Mm -hmm. classed and sexualized and Mm. in my you know in my piece I specifically wrote that this is about heterosexism because really what's happening is Asian lesbians are raised in this trope because the fetishization the objectification of Asian women are all for the pleasure of men Mm-hmm. It's not for the pleasure of other women, right? They're not mm-hmm. saying, oh, you're a dragon lady or you're submissive or you're hypersexual for other women. You're all of that for men. And that is a, a heterosexual concept, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I just, you know, to me, all of those are coming to play. And I don't want to say that it's worse or it's I'm okay because I don't present as hypersexualized. I face other things. I get called a fag walking out the street. But that's because there's this stereotype of Asian men being emasculated. Mm. And gay men are also emasculated. So they're also called fag. So this racism and homophobia are really linked and connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for laying all of that out and for that example. I mean, one of the big things is that we haven't seen law enforcement didn't name any of those things um, whatsoever. And I know one of the things you wrote about was just how infuriating that was, yeah. that that sense of denial. Yeah, completely. And it's, you know, when I first heard about the shootings that evening, that like, I think it was a Tuesday night, bits and pieces were coming out. And I just heard, you know, there were three different massage parlors targeted. And what I thought was like, oh, this is a coordinated attack white supremacists have coordinated that they're going to attack that massage parlor, that massage parlor, and that massage parlor. And then I realized it was one person. It wasn't like a group of people who've coordinated. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. one man went to all of these different places to enact violence. And I'm like, ah, okay. It's not this coordinated white supremacist attack. It is an attack by one individual who is acting on white supremacy. 
for him to deny it, I'm like, okay, you know, it, that's not unusual for him to deny it. He's not going to like name and be self-reflective on what's happening for him. Right. But right. for, you know, the law enforcement is like, oh, he's having a bad day. It's okay. You know, he's having a bad day. And he says it's sexual addiction, which is, you know, first of all, you could have all these addictions and you don't go kill people because you have these of addictions. Right. right. So I, I wanted to think about What's the systemic thing here? What's the yeah. structural thing here that's creating these conditions where he could feel that way? And we can name him. He's like, he's talked about going to church. He's a white Christian male, heterosexual. And though naming those things allows us to understand his identities and what he faces, right? And I think there's just something about him naming himself as Christian Mm. is important because there's a religious sort of Mm -hmm. undertone here and Mm -hmm. you know boulder just happened Mm -hmm. and other people who are like identified as who that shooter might be you know there's a coloring that's happening broad stroke but not happening for this white shooter yeah i mean i think this is something that we always see with mass shootings uh when the suspect is a white man um is that just about every excuse in the book is given and the person is really made out to be is is really humanized in a way that no one else on earth is humanized um if they are the suspect in one of these things this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. That's right. And it's like that individual. It's not like mm-hmm. all white men. Yep. Yeah. Or all mm-hmm. white young men, right? All white young hetero cisgender men, which, you know, we could do that, but we are trying to like humanize people and, and not, you know, paint that, that broad stroke. It was infuriating. And I'm really glad to see so many people, you know, making those linkages of racism, mm-hmm. sexism, those connections. And to me, I just think that there's, there's something about heterosexism that is at play here. And we need to talk about gender in all its forms, misogyny in all its forms, Mm -hmm. and how it's completely linked to homophobia as well. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're literally uh, getting right to my next question, which is, I have written in my notes here, misogyny is so often the root of homophobia. And so if you could talk a little bit about what is heterosexism for for our listeners who may know it from experiencing it in their lives, but who maybe just don't have the term for it. Can you talk about what that is? And then how are you thinking about this link to homophobia? Yeah. Well, heterosexism is the the thought that everyone should and has to be heterosexual. And it is that form, that normalization that everybody is heterosexual. So heterosexism is not recognizing that there are gay, lesbian, bi people. Heterosexism is this, you know, notion that there's only there can only be one kind of sexuality and that is heterosexuality connected to heterosexism is homophobia right like this fear Mm -hmm. of gay people fear of queer people and homophobia you know suzanne farr who's this white activist lesbian feminist wrote this book in the probably 80s and it was like homophobia a weapon of sexism 
So she was making the linkages of sexism brings out homophobia because you are transgressing your gender binary, right? Like if there's sexism, it's about male and female. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we weren't talking as much about gender binaries and gender nonconforming, gen- you know, non-binary people or trans folks. But it is a part of that. There's only male and female. Men have to act a particular way. Women have to act a particular way. And lesbians, whether they're butch or not, are transgressing that. And, you know, gay men are transgressing that. So that's why you have homophobia, because like, oh, you're not following in the norms of what we think people should be. Men should be this way. They should marry other women. Women should only marry men. This is why I like historical sort of things. Things change over history, right? Like at one point, you know, um, white women weren't working. Women of color have always worked. So, you know, that has always been a given. And sometimes they were working because they were enslaved and other times for other reasons. Right. But white women and the like the first wave of feminism coming out, like, oh, no, we all want to, you know, work and have um, a life outside of the home. And so there's transgressions on that. And that's why there's sexism, because women are, you know, trying to have equitable rights. And there are people now who have this perception, no, you shouldn't, or uh, yes, you should, and you should still continue to do the domestic work at home, take care of the children. So I'm, I'm sort of like moving off of that, but heterosexism, homophobia, they're all about women should be one way, men should be another way. And if there's any kind of transgression, then you're in the wrong Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do right now is normalize that there's other ways of being. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that you mentioned is you were kind of drawing the connection between heterosexism and homophobia and uh, the Atlanta attack. So, I mean, how are you thinking about this all from an LGBTQ perspective? An LGBTQ take on this is to bring in that intersectional lens and to know that, you know, we need to be thinking of things not as a single thing. It's like, oh, that's not just a racist crime yeah. that happened. That is a racist, sexist, heterosexist, and classist crime that has happened. And that's very complicated for people and nuanced for people to unpack because they're, you know, I think some folks can only handle one thing. So like, let me know, is it racism or is it sexism? Like if it's both or more than that, I don't even know how to handle that. And the conversation that we're having now is helping us handle all that yeah. because there are so many people who live that. Yeah. They're living that right now. You know, trans women of color being murdered all the time consistently. Yep. That's a problem, right? And that's mm-hmm. not the problem for the trans folks. That's the problem with the people who are committing the murders against them. That's their problem. That's their issue. And to have us have this conversation of understanding that, that there could be other ways of being in engendered forms sexuality and racialized ways it opens up to our humanity like for me it's about like why can't we be human but i know i'm a i'm of all these different identities but they shouldn't be the cause for me to get murdered or mm-hmm. harassed on the street which i am you know mm-hmm. like i am afraid really to go out and i live in you know the bay area um because a lot of this violence is happening here in the Bay Area. So it's, I think you might have seen this thing of like, you know, sometimes you like, women shouldn't dress in high heels or short skirts so yes. that they can prevent being raped. And we should just say men shouldn't rape. 
right? right like, exactly. Yeah. Right. It's like, instead of, you know, figure out what I should be wearing, it's like, don't rape. So it's, it's the same thing. I think that, you know, making those kinds of connections around that, it's like, the problem is not the person who's being attacked or the, or the victim. It's the person who's perpetrating this. We need to mm-hmm. be addressing that. Mm-hmm. Yes, the problem is white supremacy and misogyny and all the other things that we have discussed. That is that is the problem that we need to be talking about. Absolutely. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, it's not like these things are not happening within LGBTQ spaces and within the queer community. I don't want to talk about it like it's siloed off and something that's happening outside of our spaces as well. I mean, all of these issues also exist within LGBTQ spaces, too. That's right. And in particular, you know, I think, you know, you had a radio show about the increased anti-Asian hate violence, like regardless of if I'm being attacked as an Asian American, as an Asian American queer person, like I'm not trying to suss out all that. I've just been attacked. Right. 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 Yes. and, (laughs) And I'm a part of the queer community and the queer community as an ally needs to know, you know, there's connections around that. And I also know that there's there's been this history of lack of understanding around the racism that happens from other queer people. Right. And Mm -hmm. the the sexism that happens amongst queer people. Mm -hmm. And that's my umbrella term of like LGBTQ, you know, bisexual folks, trans folks, etc. We all are a part of this society, this world that is affected by racism, sexism, classism, etc. And the more that we can unpack that for ourselves, the more that we can be a a co-conspirator or an ally to people who are within our quote unquote tribe, right? Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. there's diversity here. And also, you know, I think you probably have seen these things where like, oh, if you go on Tinder, it's like, oh, no femmes, no Asians, et cetera. Right. And that's that's a form of racism within our own communities, the the queer communities. And we have to dissect that as well. Yeah, I have to tell you, when I was thinking about this, I I was one of the concrete examples I was thinking about was the things that we see happen on the dating apps. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I feel like we could devote, I mean, obviously countless shows to this topic and a whole other show uh, just to unpacking um, that one. I do want to be a little bit forward looking uh, about yeah. some of your your work as well. You have, uh, as I mentioned, you actually uh, previously co-edited um, an anthology called Q&A, Queer in Asian America that came out in, I think, 1998. Was yeah. it? And then, yeah. And then you have a forthcoming anthology um, as well. Um, what what topics and themes does the new anthology explore? How have things evolved since your first one? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of amazing to think that more than 20 plus years ago, we're coming out with a new anthology. There's more trans work written. In 1998, we did have a couple of stories and articles around transgender people, which was, you know, I think ahead of the game at that time. But there's even more. So there's more transnational. So there's more international articles and work. And there's more transgender issues happening. And we're making connections to... um Cultural studies a bit. It it had Asian America was the first one, and now it's North Asian America. Really, to think about our siblings in Canada and um, 
and elsewhere. So this international perspective is very much a part of this new anthology. And I'm very excited that I get to co-edit it with Kale Fajardo and Martin Manalanzan, sort of two key academics. I think of myself as academic adjacent. I'm kind of like (laughs) next door to it um, because I'm not in that field now, but I'm very much, you know, adjacent to that work and think of myself as a community historian and really want to link to people who are engaged in this activism and movement building on the ground and that we can have scholar activists because that is where you make some change through education. And I think there's a whole generation, like multiple generations now of college students who have read Q&A, who will now have a chance to read the new Q&A. And the fact that we have these intergenerational moments is amazing. And it's also to me that we can't we can't keep things in the ivory tower mm-hmm. that has to be rooted in sort of real life, so to speak. And yeah, there's yeah. so many, you know, queer scholars of color who, who do that work mm-hmm. because that's a part of who they are. But also they can speak in that language of academia and make change there as well, which is all needed. Alice, I appreciate you joining so much. Um, I know that this has been a rough week. Uh, It's difficult to rehash and have these conversations. So um, I just really, really appreciate you joining. Thank you so much. Thank you. LGBTQ Nation has a story up with lots of helpful history and context. America's anti-Asian sentiment began with its super racist immigration laws. So visit the site to check that out as well. Moving along to talk about some more big LGBTQ news stories from this week is Alex Bollinger, LGBTQ Nation Managing Editor. Welcome, Alex. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me again. And let's just let's just get right into the stories uh, that are on our radar this week. We must talk about Lindsey Graham and an appearance that he made on Hannity where he talked about the Equality Act. Um, he had this to say. I would talk to I fell over to make sure that the Equality Act doesn't become law, destroying the difference between a man and woman in our law. Uh, I mean, what even, Alex, is going <laughs> on here? <laughs> so what Lindsey Graham was talking about was about the strong Republican opposition to the Equality Act, and not just the Equality Act, but also pretty much every bill, every major bill that the Democrats want to pass. And right now there are 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats in the Senate, but it requires 60 votes to overcome the filibuster. So that means that 10 Republicans will have to cross over or they're going to have to do something about the filibuster in order to pass pretty much any legislation that they want to pass in the Senate. And so Biden has proposed making the filibuster a talking filibuster because we have this idea of the filibuster being like a senator will stand and read the phone book for like seven days on end until they collapse or whatever in order to run out the time on the session. But right now, actually... A senator basically tells a staffer to send an email, and that's called a filibuster, and then you need to find 60 votes to overcome that. So Biden was saying, make them actually talk. One of the major problems with Republican obstructionism in Congress is that voters don't really follow the process. So if something doesn't get passed, they just blame the president. So this would bring a lot of attention onto that obstructionism and make it less likely to happen, is the idea. So then Lindsey Graham goes on to Sean Hannity to say that he's going to talk until he falls over to oppose LGBTQ rights. And also, he specifically mentioned the For the People Act, which is a voting rights bill. And these were his two big examples of all the bills that Democrats are proposing as the two big ones that he's willing to go 
like on the line on national TV as opposing these things to show the Republican base that they are standing up for who for the people who oppose LGBTQ equality. And what this means, I mean, it's it's a funny quote, but what it really means is that Democrats are either going to have to do something about the filibuster mm. or they haven't done a roll call. So we don't know if there are 10 Republicans still across the aisle. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are not thinking that it's there. Mm. So either they're going to have to give up their agenda or they're going to have to do something about the filibuster. Yeah, I mean, I, when, I have to say that I'm among those people who got very hung up on this quote about how does, has has Senator Lindsey Graham not gotten the memo that it's one of his staffers who's going to send the email about the filibuster? Uh, is he saying this for dramatic effect? Um, but it's interesting to me that he's he's still, I mean, the real substance of this quote is that he's trying to use LGBTQ issues still as a way to, um, I guess, appeal to these conservative voters, um, which I suppose that shouldn't be all that much of a surprise. But um, I mean, to what extent do you still think that that is a a useful tactic to use? I mean, sometimes I guess I forget that as like a red meat issue on Fox News, this is still a big thing for people. It absolutely is, especially since we just wrote about Fox News this morning, that they have had, I think it was 59 segments about the Equality Act just since Joe Biden was inaugurated as president which is to me as well, like in the year 2021, is a little shocking that they're talking about it that much. But what they're talking about is they're staying away from the substance of the Equality Act because they know that Mm. on substance, it's popular. It pulls uh, between 70 to 80% of Americans support it, depending on the poll you're looking at. And they tend to focus uh, mainly on two issues, on transgender girls and women Mm -hmm. in school sports, and then on religious exemptions. So I think he's trying to appeal to people who don't really understand transgender issues in order to get them to vote for him, and then on religious conservatives. And Lindsey Graham has been opposed to LGBTQ rights for his entire career. He voted for the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 when he was in the House. I don't think of any LGBTQ thing he ever supported. (laughs) So for him personally, this isn't a surprise. None of them. But that he thinks that this is like the strongest thing to attack on, I'm guessing he's thinking that he's going to work with confusion about transgender issues and Mm -hmm. religious conservatives. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, bless you and the good folks at LGBTQ Nation for watching Fox News for the rest of us to let us know what's going on. Because even from the moment that the segment kicked off when I was watching Hannity's rant about choice, I was just like, smoke may start coming out of my ears um, right now. But one of the things that I'm always struck by whenever we see Lindsey Graham speak is that it's funny, back in 2016, I was in New Hampshire following some of the GOP presidential candidates. And Lindsey Graham was so accessible on the road. And that was also Mm. at a time when he was really uh, making uh, anti-Trump statements and seemed, you know, uh, much more, there was much more clarity about his anti-Trump perspective. And I think that that was at the time that he said his like famous quote, which is like, if we vote for Trump, you know, we're getting what we deserve. And Mm. so I'm just always struck by every time I see him speak, from this guy who you could go up and talk to on the campaign trail to now still kind of touting the Trump line. I'm always like, what what happened in this time? You know, but of course, as you mentioned, he has always been an anti-LGBTQ politician. Yeah, he's... No, but you're right. There has been transformation. Like Back during the Republican primary in 2015-2016, he famously called Donald Trump a xenophobic, race-baiting, religious bigot, which... It's really hard to imagine him saying something like that today. 
Um, maybe because he thought that he had a chance of derailing Trump's candidacy and sort of continuing with the way the Republicans used to. I wouldn't even say really keeping it under the radar, but just not being as explicit about their bigotries as Donald Trump was. He might have been trying to do that at the time. Um, but who, honestly, who knows what happened to him? Maybe he just watched Fox News too much. Like I mean, so many Americans have. And right. it changes their brains. Yeah, yeah. Well, if anybody out there listening knows, like, send me a DM on Twitter. I, I'm very intrigued about people's theories and thoughts on this one. Um, but I want to talk about some other stories as well. Um, Juwan Holmes covered a story that is pretty terrifying, which is a bill in Arkansas that would give medical workers, so nurses, EMTs, so on, the right to deny care to LGBTQ people. I feel like just in the vast chaos of our news cycle. I feel like I, I wish that this got uh, a lot more noise, um, just even on my own social media channels as well, because this is like, this is this is bad, right? Yeah, yeah, this is. Um, lots of states are considering some really aggressively anti-LGBTQ legislation this year that holds back rights that have been in place for years, sometimes even decades, depending on the state. And Arkansas passed this bill that would just expand religious exemptions for people in the healthcare industry, or healthcare workers, and even for employers that provide healthcare to their employees, they can now claim religious exemptions on that. So it would uh, allow an orga- healthcare organizations like hospitals or like physician groups to claim a religious exemption to usually anti-discrimination laws, because that's where the focus is, mm-hmm. and also would allow employees of these institutions. So like maybe someone who does billing for a hospital can say, I don't want to sign this paper that has to do with abortion or whatever because of Mm. my religious freedom. And then it gives them a right to sue the hospital and their employers if they're not granted that religious exemption. This is new. It's very expansive. It's also similar to what the Trump administration was doing over the last four years. And the Department of Health and Human Services was expanding these religious exemptions for doctors. And this was constantly being struck down by federal judges. So maybe that's the ray of hope in in this situation is that for example, I just looked it up right now. U.S. District Judge William Alsa in 2019 called it harsh treatment, the basically the equivalent rule passed by the Trump administration, and then said that it violated several different federal laws. So if this gets signed by the governor, because Arkansas in Arkansas has not been signed by the governor now, but he's a Republican. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> if it does, then I, my guess is that this goes to the courts because it's really... When you actually read the bill itself, it's hard to understand just how expansive it is because it's just saying religious exemption mm. to this long list of people. And normally the way we understand religious exemptions or the, like I think most people understand religious exemptions as someone who needs some sort of accommodation for their religion at the workplace, but they're still going to be doing their job. And this goes beyond that. And so we're going to have to really see what the courts say about yeah, I mean, I feel like the one thing that I got stuck on with the story is EMTs, like the idea that you when an EMT is coming to help you, things are not going well. And to me, it's like really wild to think that actually in real life, the way that something like this would play out is that you are like needing emergency medical care and the EMT comes up to you and is like, that is an LGBTQ person that is against my religious beliefs. Um, that kind of it, it just is like so terrifying and horrible to me. That is exactly one of the examples that Judge Alsop, who I just talked about earlier, brought up in his ruling two years ago, was that 
He said, if there is someone driving an ambulance and there's a woman who's pregnant in the back and they discover that she's going to need an abortion because of whatever medical emergency is happening, the under that rule, the EMT would be allowed to just pull over and force her out on them to the side of the road saying religious exemption. And this is terrifying. If you are of any group of people who thinks that this will be used against you, women and LGBTQ people particularly, and also religious minorities. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that story um, for sure. But I want to wrap things up talking about a topic that's near and dear to me as a bi woman. Um, You wrote about a study on bisexual women, and I found it really interesting how the study broke down which bi women are most likely to be out um, and their partner's gender. Um, This was so fascinating. I happen to be in um, a relationship with a a woman. She identifies as a lesbian. And I found, anecdotally speaking, (laughs) I can confirm this data is correct. So talk to me a little bit about this. (laughs) This, I got really excited when I first read about this study, just just as having written in LGBTQ media for, I think, 14 years now. Back when I started in 2007, if there was a study on LGBTQ people, it would either be like, check the box to say LGBT, or they would separate gay versus straight. And now we're seeing this particular study that focused only on bisexual women, and then separated out based on both the gender and the sexual orientation of their partner, and asked several questions. So I think just for that, for that reason alone, I was already excited that we're seeing academics take this level of interest in us, which 14 years ago was just unheard of. And in the study, it was about relationships, and they compared bisexual women who were in relationships with straight men, with bi men, with bi women, with lesbians, and who were also not in a relationship at all. And they also did ask about non-binary partners, but they didn't have enough data to do breakout statistics for that group. Yeah, so one thing that we already know from previous studies is that bisexual women who are in relationships with other women are more likely to be out and are more likely to face discrimination than bisexual women who are in relationships with men, but we've never broken it down by the sexual orientation of their partners. And what one interesting thing the study found was that bi women who are in relationships with bi men are more likely to be out of face discrimination than bi Mm. women who are in relationships with straight men, which is interesting because the normal theory to describe the differences between bisexual women who are in relationships with men versus women is that they either up their fearness is more or less visible, but this, it would be just as visible. So the study goes mm-hmm. into discussing what the researcher called vicarious discrimination, that is discrimination against a bisexual woman because she's dating a bisexual man, which to mm-hmm. her is discrimination because of her bisexuality. And this is, of course, just one study. It's a first study, but it's so exciting to see that this is a field that people are going to be looking at. I Okay, I have to tell you, I'm like, I'm so delighted by this study and the way that it parses out different genders. Do you know, and just because also I feel like we've seen, you know, I'm old enough to remember, and I'm sure you can remember this too, when there would be like headlines that are like, do bisexual men exist? You know, I'm like, baby, we have come a long (laughs) way, you know, we're doing so much better. But I have to say, I am delighted that this study is so specific. As you were talking about the results, do you know that gif of the woman who is like looking at all the math problems being solved? It's Mm -hmm. an incredibly popular gif. I was trying to like connect all the dots very quickly in my mind about what, what, what we've learned here. But I have to say, you know, again, in my totally unscientific experience, it makes sense to me. I feel like I know a lot of bi women and 
by women like myself who are in, on the face of it, lesbian appearing relationships and who have felt very affirmed by their lesbian partners to talk about their bisexuality and are just around a lot more bi women as well. And I've been really encouraged to be out and proud about being bi in my relationship, even though like a lot of people will just think that it's a lesbian relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, then you do face that discrimination from homophobia. Whereas, you know, we know that by people who are in uh, relationships that appear heterosexual, yeah, they they are not coming out as much. And then that has all other kinds of issues for them having to be closeted. So I feel like there are yeah. so many different layers to this, but um, I'm just, I'm so excited that it feels like it was a really nuanced study. It was. And yeah, it's not, the study is not saying go break up with your, your boyfriend and go find a good lesbian. But I mean, I mean, if you want, the if study you want sh- to, I can vouch the study should say that. <laughs> then let's just say right now, if anyone needs to hear it, go do that. <laughs> go do that. <laughs> Y'all heard it here. Well, Alex, we can leave it all there. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, where can folks find you on the social medias? I am on Twitter. Alex B. Bollinger is my handle. Awesome. Each week after we talk about the news, I like to leave you with a story that's bringing me joy and We do deserve a good story this week. Catalina Enriquez made history as the first out transgender woman to win the Miss Silver State USA pageant. This is a preliminary competition to the Miss Nevada USA pageant that leads to Miss USA and ultimately Miss Universe. Enriquez is using her platform to talk about the issues that trans women face. She said that one of the obstacles I encounter every day is just being true to myself. Today, I'm a proud transgender woman of color. Personally, I've learned that my differences do not make me less than... It makes me more than, and my differences are what makes me unique. And I know that my uniqueness will take me to all my destinations and whatever I need to go through in life. She's also talked about what she's had to go through as a trans woman competing in pageants, like undergoing a medical examination and not getting a roommate like the other women competing. Enriquez is set to compete at the Miss Nevada competition in June, and it's awesome that she's using her platform to advocate on behalf of her community. Congrats on your win and good luck. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, Music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Katz, John Halbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa DeMonts. Forever. Forever.